to this Bruegel event on intellectual property and competition policy in Europe and Japan. Uh, it is a great pleasure to have uh, great speakers uh, today with us. We will start with uh, uh, Professor Eiko Aoki, who is a commissioner at the Japan Fair Trade uh, uh, Commission, and will uh, give the, the opening talk. Um, thank you for coming. And then we'll move to panel discussion uh, with um, Kayu de Kuhn, from, uh, a professor at the University of East uh, Iglia and visiting professor at uh, Düsseldorf, yeah. and also in the past uh, chief competition economist here in the commission. Uh, we'll have uh, Michael uh, Koenig, who is the acting head of uh, the Unit for Intellectual Property and Fight Against uh, Counterfeiting at the European Commission. Thank you for coming. And uh, we'll close the panel with Peter Alexiadis, who is the founding partner of Gibson, Dunn, and uh, Kratzer in the Brussels office. Peter, welcome. Um, so, um, the idea is uh, to talk about intellectual property, how we can uh, incentivize more innovation, and how we can uh, lead to uh, more growth uh, that we all need, and uh, what is the role of competition policy, if any, uh, to achieve this goal. Um, so, without further ado, I will give the floor uh, to Professor Aoki for her presentation, and then we'll go to the panel discussion. And how do I? Uh, well, there is no pointer. So you can see here and you can point there and change. Okay. Hello. Um, okay. Okay. Well, thank you. Hi. Um, thank you, Jojo. And uh, first of all, thank you very much for, uh, I'd like to thank Jojo Petropoulos for organizing this session. And I'm very honored to be uh, part of this. Uh, 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 session with uh, very distinguished panelists. And what I will try to do is give you a very quick overview of the uh, Japanese competition law and then talk about the relationship with, between intellectual property and competition policy. There's a guideline, intellectual property guideline, that's been published by the JFTC, so I'll talk about that. And I'll finish with the latest case that uh, in Japan uh, that oh, a competition policy issue uh, that involves intellectual property, which was the one blue, the Blu-ray uh, patentable case. So uh, I'll do my best to be informative and may, uh, give useful information to you, so please bear with me. Uh, first of all, the Japanese uh, competition uh, law uh, the Anti-Policy Act was established in 1947. It's 70 years old this year, and it's the third oldest competition law in the world. And the purpose is to, it's in small letters, uh, to promote the democratic and wholesome development of the national economy as well as to assure the interests of general consumers. And actually, the consumer agency has uh, become independent on its own since 2009. So that part's kind of dropped off the JFTC's uh, mission. Uh, Japan Fair Trade Commission was established the same year, and there's one chairman and four commissioners. I'm one of the four commissioners. And there are about 800 staff in the general secretariat, 
and there are a few uh, prosecutors and judges also on staff at the JFTC. And this gives you a quick uh, comparison uh, of how the uh, competition law structure looks in Japan compared to EU and also the United States. Uh, after the fact, regulation here has um, horizontal restriction and vertical restriction. In Japan, the horizontal restriction is, uh, uh, part, is governed by the unreasonable restraint of trade, Article 3 of, and Article 8 of the uh, anti-monopoly law. And this is basically uh, cartels and price fixing. Uh, for vertical restriction, uh, we have the unfair trade practice, Article 19, which has a list of uh, things that are uh, likely to be anti-competitive. And for vertical restraints, it, would, it includes things like resale price maintenance and uh, vertical restrictions, regional restrictions or tie-ins, for instance, would be in the uh, article list of uh, things in the Article 19 called unfair trade practices. And you'll see there's more unfair trade practices down here. Uh, also continue some things in the article list of actions listed in Article 19 would be part of what we call the monopolization or abuse of dominant uh, uh, position. So this has in Japan, actually, we don't call it abuse of dominant position. We say abuse of uh, superior position, but very similar to dominant position. The unfair trade practice also, uh, in terms of monopolization, would include uh, being um, hurting your competitors by uh, interrupting uh, transaction or competitors, for instance, impeding competitors' transactions would also be in here. Under monopolization, we also have uh, the second half of Article 3, and this refers to stock ownerships of firms. For ex-ante regulation, which is primarily merger regulation, we have Chapter 4 of the same law. Uh, what's unique about Japanese uh, competition law might be, some of you might already be aware, is that Subcontract sub Act is also uh, under um, the job of the JFTC. And this is primarily to protect medium and small businesses. As you noted, a large part of anti-monopoly law in Japan is for economic activity, promoting economic activity and economic growth. And there's belief in Japan, and it's probably true that small and medium businesses are very critical to that. And therefore, JFTC is also responsible for implementing the uh, Subtract Contract Act, uh, which uh, protects the SMEs. Uh, now on to intellectual property rights and competition policy. I'm sure you're aware that IP has positive effects <laughs> on competition uh, by stimulating R&D activity of enterprises and so forth. And of course, giving property rights to ideas is a very important uh, aspect of intellectual property. And that makes transaction of technology policies, which further has positive impact on uh, competition. Um, 
so comp competition law and IP law have complementary relationships, have a comp complementary relationship, and that's uh, reflected on the, these laws here. So there's an anti-monopoly act. Uh, it says it, it tries to promote fair and free competition and development of the national economy. The patent law also has very similar uh, purpose to contribute to development of industry, and so does the Intellectual Property uh, Basic Act. In Japan, you have basic acts, which are laws that tell, give ideas of what should be done, and they're used for long-term uh, policy making. And there's been, there is an Intellectual Property Basic uh, Act in Japan that also talks about uh, the economy and also that it should be, uh, the IP should be used to promote fair trade, uh, fair and free uh, competition. However, uh, we know that IP may have negative effects on competition if the IP holder, for instance, refuses to license its technology or imposes strictly restrictive con competition, uh, con conditions. And in that case, Competition law can protect competition from negative effects and also promote competition by enhancing uh, the IP system itself. And how is that put it in, uh, how is that reflected in the law? First of all, Japanese competition law gives an exemption on the uh, exercise of IP rights. So there's Article 21 in the Anti-Monopoly Act that says the provision of this act do not apply to acts found to constitute an exercise of rights uh, under these intellectual property rights. But of course, uh, the question is, uh, what's exercise of rights? So let's look at what constitutes exercise of rights a little bit closer. In case where the conduct in question deviate from IP rights, protection system, it cannot be regarded as normal exercise of AP, IP rights. So what's going to determine a conduct that deviates from IP rights protection? Well, you have to look at, ask questions like, does uh, the conduct stimulate the firm's efforts for creativity and practice of new technologies, which is what IP system is supposed to do, taking into account firm's intention and manner of conduct? and impact on uh, competition. Uh, so put it a little, what does it mean legally? Well, when restriction concerning use of technologies results in excluding or controlling other firms' business, this may be private, this may uh, be uh, inspected under the Private Monopolization Act. Uh, which is Article 2 of the AMA, or when right holders' conduct is likely to impede fair competition, even if it does not match the requirements of private monopolization up here, it may still be a problem under the conduct uh, defined by the unfair trade practices, which are uh, summaries of the uh, different articles that I put at the very beginning when we compared the EU and the, and the Japanese law. So these things, restrictions may be a problem under these articles in the Anti-Monopoly um, Act. Uh, 
so this is how it's reflected in the law. How is IP system in practice regarded by competition policy authorities? And for that, we have the guidelines for the use of intellectual property and by the Anti-Monopoly Act. And this is a publication of the JFTC. And it originally was uh, instated in 2006 uh, to uh, clarify the application of the Anti-Monopoly Act on the issues related to the uh, standard essential patents. Uh, if you remember, in the, uh, around that time, there was the Rambus case in the United States, and there was a lot of concern about patent trolls and how SCPs could be abused. And the guidelines for the use of intellectual property rights was in response to that problem. Uh, however, since 2007, there's been other court cases, as I'm sure you all know, uh, the guideline became unsatisfactory. In particular, there was a lot of question about when injunctions could be used by the SCP holder and when it should be limited. And to, in particular in Japan also, there was an Apple-Samsung uh, Samsung case. And in response, the JFTC reviewed the guidelines and added description about SCP holders' behavior, particularly paying attention uh, to injunction. So what was the, quickly reviewing what the Apple-Samsung case, uh, which was a civil litigation case in Japan, uh, the main issue was, is it illegal to demand an injunction related to friend encumbered uh, standardizational patent by, uh, that was uh, owned by Samsung. And the judgment is the following. The execution of the right to demand an injunction based on the friend encumbered patent is an abuse of rights uh, if the other party is willing to take a license, is willing to license under uh, friend conditions. <coughs> Uh, so the guidelines was uh, reviewed in 2016, and now it has these uh, statements. So conducts by a friend encumbered in session patent holder not regarded as an exercise of patent rights under the patent laws uh, as follows. So refusal to license, so claim for injunction to a party, who is willing to take a license on friend terms, which is exactly the ruling that we just saw. For also, withdrawal of friend declaration for essential patent and refusal to license or claim for injunction to a party who is willing to take a license for initial patent on friend terms. Both of these actions, uh, conducts, are subject to anti-monopoly act. Uh, Monopoly Act period, according to the uh, new uh, guidelines. Uh, so the revisional guideline says whether or not a party is the one who is willing to take a license, however, uh, should be decided on case-by-case -case basis, taking account the behavior of both sides in the license and negotiation process. So the guidelines made clear when it was uh, an abuse but it's very important to determine if the, the parties were willing or not, and that's still kind of left for the courts to decide, and that's where the guideline uh, stands at the moment. And now I'd just like to finish with the, um, 
Oops. Thank you very much. Um, so I, I'll just finish with one blue case, uh, the, which uh, just, um, well, it didn't finish. Uh, as you'll see, it was closed uh, just a few months ago. Uh, so one blue, uh, I'm sure uh, many of you know, is a patent pool that manages the Blu-ray disc uh, SEPs. And it acts as a licensor for uh, its members who are the SCP owners. Uh, SCP owners, of course, have de declared that they will license the uh, uh, patents on the FRAN terms. Uh, and this is kind of important. Some one blue licensors are engaged, also engaged in manufacturing and sales of recordable BD. So uh, firms that are in the blue, this uh, patent pool are one example would be Philips and also Sony. They own the patent and also manufacture the discs. And person or entity that wishes to be granted a license may enter into an agreement with one blue. And of course, these caveats, which are very common, uh, apply in this case. It's not very important for the case. Uh, so this is basically what it looks like here. The SCP owners who, who constitute a, 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 the one blue patent, these are the manufacturers who have to get the license. And then these manufacturers sell it to the retailers down here. Uh, and these, they sell the discs to the uh, retailer. And yeah, as you'll see in the next page, uh, Emation is one of the manufacturers that was uh, oh, that manufactures and sells the recordable BDs. Imation and OneBlue engaged in negotiation to license, uh, but they were no, not able to agree on the exact fees to be charged. And Imation uh, presented to OneBlue willingness to pay to license, but was unhappy uh, with the fee. But OneBlue. Uh, never explained, and the reason was if they negotiated with one not licensee, it would be no longer be non-discriminatory, so they couldn't uh, engage in negotiations. So the picture remained like this, where Emation had to manufacture without a license. And in June 2013, OneBlue sent a notice to three of the major customers of Emation uh, that retail the uh, Emation recordable BDs and informed that one blue licensors, i.e. the SCP owners, could seek injunction against them, the retailer, for SCP infringement. And they were very scared. These retailers are, I don't know if, if you uh, been to Japan. In Japan, you have these huge appliance electronic stores, and all three were major companies. And when they got this letter, they didn't. One of the firms, the retailer, decided they didn't want to bother with bother with emission product, and they just decided to uh, suspend, stop selling the emission discs. So one blue sent a letter to the retailers, and one of the retailers decided not to buy the emission discs anymore. So what happened? Uh, Imation filed a lawsuit to Tokyo District Court seeking injunction against one blue conduct. 
uh, threatened to file an injunction anyway. And in February 2015, Tokyo District Court, court uh, ruled the following. So Wan Blue was not allowed to exercise the right to seek injunction because that would be abuse of rights. That's what it said in the guideline. And therefore, notifying the retailer that Wan Blue was entitled to exercise such right was actually false allegation and falls under unfair competition of the Unfair Competition Prevention Act, which is one of the laws that support the AMA. So it wasn't actually the abuse, but actually uh, because Wan Blue was not entitled to do this, uh, make, claiming that they could do this was, uh, uh, was lying, which is also uh, illegal under the uh, Unfair Competition Act. And the... Um, and subsequent to the final and binding judgment, which was this, the customer resumed the uh, sale of animation uh, discs in, later in 2015. However, later that year, animation withdrew from manufacturing sales uh, of discs altogether. So, um, yes, so because the animation uh, withdrew from manufacturing, the CFTC was actually not, uh, didn't need to make a ruling on this issue, so the case was closed, but I brought up, so uh, we didn't do, take any action, but uh, it's an example of the, uh, the guidelines for intellectual property actually um, being used in uh, part of the arguments. So I, I uh, presented this uh, example here. And thank you very much for your attention. Thanks so much for this presentation. Um, I think it became clear that um, uh, competition uh, has a clear uh, role um, on intellectual property issues. And um, uh, in fact, um, uh, competition policy um, through particular cases can give us some insights on how to um, design and implement particular uh, guidelines uh, for uh, um, intellectual property and motivating uh, innovation. I noticed that um, uh, in every slide there was uh, the sentence, no competition, not growth. Uh, but there are some empirical evidence uh, that suggests that um, um, competition and growth has uh, a non-linear relationship. Uh, is this something that we should take into account uh, when we evaluate uh, particular cases? That, so the, you're talking about the U-shaped curve. The inverted U-shaped uh, relationship. So it's actually best not to have complete competition, you're saying? Exactly. After some point, uh, an increase in competition in the market reduces innovation, reduces growth. Mm -hmm. Yes, empirically, that's true. Uh, in case of Japan, uh, this is my personal opinion. Everything I say here is my personal opinion. Uh, I don't think we have too much competition for the uh, purpose of innovation. So I think JFTC always is in the business of making uh, the market more competitive, and that will always promote innovation. Thank you very much. Um, let's, uh, let's go to the panel, and after we finish uh, the first round of uh, talks, so we can uh, 
have a discussion and question each other. Uh, so I will turn to the European, uh, European uh, competition policy expert and academic uh, to, you have a microphone, so. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. So that's right. you will also use slides, so. Yes, I'll try to use some slides, yes. Oh, they're not doing that already. Um, I, I really want to just, just point out three things um, in what I'm gonna talk about. One is, I think I do want to question whether kind of everything that we have in terms of the IP system is really working. I think there's a lot of evidence that these days it doesn't, and it, it may be interesting to kind of fix on what that actually is, also when we're getting to some of the discussion of competition. Uh, and I want to briefly talk about SEPs and competition enforcement, and um, will want to argue that that can only be done on a very, very limited set, and I think that the commission is probably done with that in terms of its competition enforcement. Uh, and thirdly, talk a little bit about the last point that Georgia uh, brought up, um, kind of in the merger context of the interrelationship between concentration and, and innovation, which is, is becoming much more of an issue in mergers. Um, so let me first say, kind of in, in maybe 20 years ago, when we, talk, we were talking about the first Microsoft case, and I was involved in that, uh, everybody said, you cannot talk about IP rights here because we're terribly worried that someone says you're violating IP rights if you're intervening with Microsoft. We're very far from that these days. I think part of that um, is that we're a bit more skeptical about what IP <coughs> rights are actually doing and whether intervention sometimes might not be necessary. And I think one of the big issues in this context, and I found that shocking when I first started teaching this, is that we have really good evidence that property rights generally improve growth, but there's virtually no evidence that strong IP rights promote growth. And that's something that's relatively worrying, and there's, there are a lot of studies out there, um, a lot of them from the 19th century, because we have, have a bit more um, data and comparisons in there, uh, that tell us that you know, a lot of the innovation was actually in countries that had less effective patent systems. Uh, there's a really nice study by Moser in, in, uh, about the Paris World Fair that's worthwhile seeing. Not that this doesn't have an effect. So, so she also shows that there was a the bias then towards innovations in industries that had good um, trade secrets protection. Uh, but we also had a lot of problems, for example, in the US where patent protection was strong and the suing machines where we have kind of first examples of pat, uh, patent thickets and strategic planning where it was actually keeping up innovation uh, in suing machines. Um, and we also know that it's not just patents that stimulate innovation, but a lot of innovation also comes through imitation. If you just kind of think about the importance of Samsung's imitating uh, Apple making it possible to experiment with the size of the screens and figuring out that actually with smartphones you want to have different screens than someone who was just using the phone also for the internet. Um, so I think there is a, a question of are we overprotecting intellectual property? Um, generally there is a trade-off between innovation and incentives and exposed competition. So you want to give incentives for innovation by giving a return, but at the same time, once the product is out there, you want to distribute it as, as much as you can. And that trade-off isn't clear that it should be the same for all industries and so on and so forth. We have, from the last 10 years, research uh, that shows that copyright is clearly excessive and that there's no benefit from having copyright beyond 30 years. We have, in a lot of cases, 100. Um, and we know that in a lot of areas, just think about science, uh, having copyright is actually uh, preventing 
uh, sometimes the distribution of knowledge and new knowledge. So um, in the ICT industries, the patent thicket problems have been multiplied partly because of the strong complementarity and so many things that are going on. Uh, we just have that, for example, in, in biomedical research. Um, and um, I think the other thing that worries me very often in the ICT industries and also in biotechnology is that what we're seeing in practice is that firms are innovating and doing a lot of R&D and they're actually not looking at what the others do and what their patents are do. They don't imitate what the others do. They just reinvent and know that lots of the time they're actually infringing. But the whole point of the patent system is that I'm giving a right so that no one else is imitating. So if they're innovating anyway, and you're innovating knowing that someone else is imitating, there's really the question of what, it, what the system actually does for innovation. The reason is that there's so much complementarity in different parts that go into large innovations. Each one of these complementary parts is patented, that there is, is uh, I think, in economics, not a lot of economists who think that some of the patent protection there is rather hindering innovation than promoting it, and I think that's also one of the general issues that is underlying the SCP issue, but the ESCP issue is really only one subpart of those <coughs> issues. Okay, let me get to um, SCPs. Really, the issue there for competition policy is the basic holdup issue that you're committing to the standard. Everything that's in the standard essentially becomes a monopoly because you have to use it if you want to uh, use the standard. Um, and then you can have exploitative abuses of prices being too high. And the reason is the price is only being applied, so the royalties are only being negotiated after the commitment. There are good reasons why you can't do that ex ante. And we know that the France, FRAND as a principle came about because of the concern of the holdup problem, but it's so vague basically that the orders of magnitudes by which firms differ are enormously large, just as much um, as this term willing licensee is incredibly vague. And I think there it's important, and maybe I don't know whether there's a contrast to the Japanese case, that the goal uh, that the commission had DG competition with its intervention was really very limited in the um, in the case of um, in the cases that they did on um, injunctions. Uh, in order to show that there's a way that to show that you're a willing licensee, you basically have a safe harbor rule where you're basically saying, look, I commit to accepting anything that a court would say. And once I'm saying that, I'm a willing licensee, and then you can't injunct me anymore. That gets around the problem that there's enormous uncertainty what people might interpret as a willing licensee or not. This gives a potential licensee the way of committing to it and was supposed to kind of kick off uh, a general uh, change potentially in the regulatory structure and in what, what SSOs were doing. I think that's about as far as one could do. There's a lot of literature that shows that if you're allowing injunctions, you're making the holdup problem worse. So by reduce, reducing the use of injunctions, you could be improving things. But there's no way, after looking at this, after a very short period of time, one, one realizes that there's no way that a competition regulator could find what the right frank rate would be. Uh, this is actually a hard problem, again, because of the complementarity. And it's in the end if the SSOs don't manage to do this or uh, patent pools don't manage to do that, we're, we're just not going to get there. Um, I just wanted to talk about the last topic of competition and innovation, 
Uh, there are more and more mergers in which this matters. Uh, the, the current chief economist has said that they kind of do think there are some criteria in there uh, that you can use, even looking at patent citations or patenting by the firms. It's coming up in Dow DuPont. It's been coming up in the HDD mergers that I've, that, that where I was involved in. Amatel was a really interesting case in um, instruments um, for producing small chips and the new technology coming about. And Amatel would block, was blocked in the US because the people were not so much worried that these two firms were doing the same thing. They were mostly not overlapping. But they had engineering pools of engineers who could do both things. And that was the concern that you were taking potential competition and innovation off the market. And that was essentially the reason why this, why this collapsed. Uh, the other thing, and that was a, is a direct answer to your question, I think there's a bit of consensus now that as long as we're talking about markets that are sufficiently concentrated to fall in the remit of competition policy, we mostly have that competition is good for innovation. Right? There used to be kind of this discussion about the trade-off between Arrow and Schumpeter. Um, and I think the intuition for this that I like to give um, why that effect of competition actually outweighs things is if you're thinking about patents as races towards the next better thing. If you have two, once someone is ahead, the other guy falls back and you're getting towards monopoly. If you have three guys racing, then if I fall back as the second, it's still really bad if I'm overtaken by the third. So I still work harder. And so the first one has to work harder. And so once you're starting to write models down of that type, you're actually getting into situations where it's actually really important taking the racer out of the, out of the race. So if you have a 400-meter race with two people, it's probably slower than one with three. And that's the basic intuition why I think we're getting a lot of these results uh, now in the economic literature. So I think this is kind of the merger area is really the one where, where innovation and competition really are going to come together um, also in the next couple of years. Thank you so much for these comments, and uh, I think um, you underline uh, some major challenges and uh, uh, you gave a very good analysis of um, associated issues. Before I move to Michael, because I'm interested to hear his view on whether he believes that indeed we are overprotecting uh, in inventions and intellectual property, I would like to ask you about the ICT services and the concerns you mentioned. I mean, typically, um, uh, new inventions, uh, they have behind uh, a lot of patents. And mm -hmm. uh, infringement is uh, something that uh, can happen uh, very frequently. Uh, could it be the case that um, we arrive to an equilibrium that firms do not, um, do not uh, choose uh, to, to go to the courts for such infringements just because they know that if they go, they will start a patent war in the court because its company at some point violated something else. So could we have a market equilibrium to escape from this overprotection? Well, I think we used to to some extent because we have the same uh, multiplicity of patents, for example, in the computer industry, so, so in computer production. Um, but the point was that all of the firms that were in there had very symmetric portfolios. So what HP would be doing is just cross-license. Uh, and everybody was cross-licensing everybody else and there was basically peace on that front. What we've seen in recent years in the ICT industry is that people were coming from very different types of activities. Uh, Apple was really good in design and got these design patents. 
Um, other firms uh, were very concentrated on standards and got standard essential patents. And so the relative value of these patents wasn't very clear, so you got a lot of asymmetries between firms. And I think that has been, firms have been trying to sort that out in the court system, and that's, that's led to a lot of that friction that we're seeing. Um, also means, of course, that if you don't have a large patent portfolio, you're, you are at a real disadvantage if you're trying to enter markets, right? So, um, but, but, but I do think kind of the, the, the increased asymmetry between the players and the market has, has made a big difference for um, cross-licensing, not resolving the issues in the same way as it did before. Thank you. Michael, your thoughts? Yeah, thank you very much. Um, and um, thanks for, for inviting me, and I think indeed it uh, gives a nice uh, sort of... Um, uh, dialogue uh, now across the uh, the panel. Um, I will um, focus a little bit more on the intellectual property part, obviously, of the topic because I'm, you know, I'm coming from from DG Grow. Um, although we um, we work very closely, of course, with our colleagues from from DG Competition, and I personally also worked uh, for quite a while uh, in in this area. Now, um, it will probably not uh, surprise you from the head of the intellectual property unit, that we still believe very strongly in IP and its value um, and um, uh, wouldn't fully share sort of the, the, the contention that we, we, we would overprotect. But I think um, I, uh, I also would say that obviously we believe in, in competition and um, um, believe that the two have to work together. And we need an IP policy and a competition policy to, to make this work. And I think we can't leave it just to, to one side of the two. I think um, you just mentioned the limits of competition policy in a certain area. And at the same time, probably also IP policy has its limits um, to address uh, uh, certain issues. Um, I think uh, we also have to, to stress uh, clearly that IP are obviously not a goal in, in themselves or a value in themselves. Um, they are only as, as good and as acceptable, the monopolies that they basically provide, are only acceptable to the extent that they translate in the end in innovation and you know, growth, jobs, what we actually um, um, want to achieve. Um, and um, I believe there are basically three main ingredients uh, which have to be right to, to get to this, um, to this effect, which first, we need the right toolbox sort of available, Secondly, this toolbox has to be accessible to the whole range of, of companies. And thirdly, the, uh, and thirdly the, the tools have to be sharp, if you want, so they, they have to, to function. Um, when it comes to the first one, um, we, um, I think we, we have quite a, a number of tools, uh, IP tools, available here in Europe. I mean, you know uh, probably that we're working on the last sort of to fill the, the puzzle, which is uh, a unitary patent title, a real unitary patent title uh, across uh, the, um, the EU, at least the largest part of it. And um, for once again, we, we believe that we are on the last mile to, to get there. Um, just also to stress that uh, when I talk about a toolbox um, that also includes um, instruments like uh, the recently adopted uh, Trade Secrets Directive, because you also mentioned that um, this might be an alternative um, for companies who don't want to venture into um, registered IP and you know, all what comes with it, uh, to nevertheless um, preserve their competitive edge to a certain extent. And this directive actually is um, directed at harmonizing and creating a level playing field on um, some really principal measures in, in member states that should be available to, to work against the misappropriation of, of, of trade secrets. Um, 
having tools in place is one thing, but uh, the tools also always have to be um, sort of up to date and basically stay abreast with the de developments that we have and with new market developments. Um, one area that, uh, for example, I can mention that we just opened now is uh, precisely the pharma sector. Um, we uh, just published uh, a kind of a roadmap for our evaluation of the IP system and incentive system in the um, uh, pharmaceutical industry because we precisely, you know, this is an area where uh, things develop a lot, where, where new models in developing and innovating uh, come about and we really have to see whether our um, system as we have it today is, uh, is still up uh, and really delivers on, on all the promises that it has. I think in this context we maybe also have to talk um, about the concrete delivery of the titles um, and in the patent field also about patent quality. Because I think many of the problems that are mentioned in the ICT sector, et cetera, um, also relate to a certain extent to the question of patent uh, quality and what is actually patentable and patented. Um, uh, uh, and, and I think that that's probably also worth uh, having, a, having a look at. Now, um, the second point uh, I mentioned is um, accessibility of the toolbox. Um, this is basically uh, to make sure that these tools are not reserved to only a certain part of the economic players, or big players in particular, but that also smaller companies can, can actually um, profit and exploit them. And we have uh, evidence that um, SMEs that use IP um, do, do better, but that the proportion of those who do so, actually, who use IP is, is very, very small and really a fraction. Um, and to address this, we... Um, came up recently with a communication on startups, which has a whole chapter on, on IP and fostering the access of, um, of uh, smaller companies to IP. And there, um, you have measured the range from, on the one hand, what we call like IP pre-diagnostics, so basically a coaching for companies on whether and to what extent it's useful to take up registered IP, how they could develop their innovation strategy around it, or whether alternatives means are, are better. Um, and also things like um, when it comes to, to litigation, which is, a, which is a big issue in enforcement, ideas around uh, fostering something like an insurance scheme for, for smaller companies to, to basically um, get coverage if, if they are entangled in, 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 in um, costly litigation. Um, and then uh, the last point I mentioned was uh, the sharpness of the tools. So, um, which uh, is basically what we put under the, the title of, of enforcement um, of, of IP, um, which, uh, which comes with it because I think, uh, again, bringing out IP or registered rights, which in the end are not enforceable or not enforced, um, in the end, don't, again, don't, don't serve their purpose. And I think we have to look from, from two angles um, whether this makes sense. Here we also have a number of um, initiatives ongoing. One is more legislative because we have a directive which is harmonizing the enforcement of IP, civil law enforcement across the EU, where we're looking again whether it's up to the challenges of the more digital age today. But again, legislation is not all and cannot serve all problems. We also have a number of activities going on that we bundle under the the headline follow the money approach, which basically is the idea to try to cut off the money streams that um, are linked to uh, IP infringements and counterfeiting in particular. Because if you look at some of the figures, I mean, there are indications from OECD studies that 5% of products imported in the EU are actually counterfeit. 
and that comes with a, with a price tag as well, obviously. Um, and these are activities where we try in, in voluntary agreements between stakeholders um, to try to find practices to cut into these money streams. We work with um, online uh, um, platforms, we work with uh, um, advertisers, online advertisers, we work with payment service providers and, and, and shipping companies, for example, to cut into this, um, into this uh, um, basically industry that it has become to, to, to counterfeit and uh, uh, sort of uh, infringe IP. Um, and um, this enforcement, I think, is a good bridge to come to the last point, which is about standard essential patents, um, because the, um, the focus and, and the trigger and attention it got um, started basically with the enforcement of, of standard essential patents and the question whether there should be limits actually to, um, to enforce IP, uh, standard essential patents. Mm, I think we, we indeed have to um, always be conscious that standard essential patents are a sp specific fraction of uh, patents because um, they, um, they are standard essential, which means that um, they, everybody who wants to comply with the standard has to you know, use this technology and has to have access to this patent. And that's why um, SEP holders uh, typically gave a commitment to give this access. Um, so uh, I think that is, um, that is important to, to, to note. And um, I think we, um, we fully stand uh, behind the, the, the decisions that the Commission uh, took in, in the two landmark cases on, um, on standard essential patents, where they said, yes, indeed, if you are faced with a willing licensee, I think it, uh, it can amount to, a, to an abuse if you still enforce uh, a standard essential patent. Um, now, um, this was followed up also by a, by a judgment, uh, um, uh, which you probably all know in the, in the Huawei and ZTE case by the ECJ, um, a judgment which I think um, addressed Mm, let's say, more the conduct side of things. So basically the court didn't say what is friend and uh, um, what, um, what methodology should you apply. So it doesn't help on getting the right fixed, but um, it basically focused on a process uh, on how the negotiations basically should look like to in, in the end say, well, one of the, uh, uh, or the licensee is, is willing in, in that context. And... Um, I think the judgment brought uh, a lot of very helpful clarifications, and um, I think it, it definitely is a, it was a very important step, a very, uh, a very smart judgment. Um, but at the same time, I think uh, it, it could only address, naturally, a certain part of the questions, and there are still uh, questions out there which uh, I think neither the court nor national courts nor competition policy can really address uh, in, in, in detail, um, because again, in the SEPs context, um, I think the enforcement is only one pillar of making this a successful uh, field. I think it's, it's very right what, um, um, what you said, that there is a, a shift in, we saw first a shift in, in the type of players in this area, so from vertically integrated, very uh, uh, homogeneous players who essentially cross-licensed to a system where certain companies only focus now more on the upstream and the, and the IP and, and R&D part, whereas others focus on, on the end devices and bringing those to the market and more accessing this technology, which I think has brought us all these uh, famous smartphone wars and the struggle we have around it. But I, we believe that there is another um, element which now uh, brings us in a new um, 
new stage, a new phase, uh, which is uh, the advent of the Internet of Things, which basically means that uh, mobile connectivity will find its way in a very broad range of products um, and products which have nothing to do with the ICT sector because they range from fridges to cars to uh, um, household devices. You have players who, who are not in this sort of circle of ICT companies and who go to the standard setting organizations every month. Um, and um, you also have the feature that this mobile connectivity is basically an ancillary factor um, feature of the, of the device and not a key feature like for a smartphone or a computer. And I think this um, calls for a new look at, at, at the licensing environment and how, how actually uh, um, the whole system around SAPs and the licensing is, um, is, uh, is made. And this is something that we're also looking at, um, whether um, there is a need to put in a couple of signposts, um, signposts really in the terms of very broad uh, um, principles of what we believe is necessary to have a smooth and balanced licensing framework um, in, in this new context for standard essential patents. Thank you. Thank you very much, Michael. Um, in the, in the th third pillar, the enforcement you mentioned, uh, you refer about uh, the attempt to harmonize rules across member states. Um, is this uh, really an issue? We have a great divergence because from competition policy uh, point of view, we have uh, basically the EU competition uh, law mm. that it, we could say that it is uh, above uh, national law mm. and we have some uniformity. Um, is there an issue? Uh, I mean, where are we uh, in this harmonization process and what are the challenges? Yeah, well, um, when it comes to... Um enforcement of intellectual property, we don't have sort of overarching treaty articles because this is basically which gives you the, the overarching um, frame for, for you know, EU competition policy, which then gives certain sort of harmonization already across different member states. Um, and uh, there is a directive in place uh, which um, still dates from, from the years 2000. Um, which for the first time was an attempt to harmonize certain elements. And uh, this is very sort of broad brush, uh, if you want. So this basically just says that member states have to make available tools like injunctive relief for the enforcement of IP. Yeah? So this is sort of the level of sort of detail and granularity um, um, that this is about. And um, there are um, uh, calls to look at this again, um, also because precisely the... Um, the way this is applied throughout member states um, goes on a very large spectrum. Um, not only, I mean, that's, and I also to be sure, this is not uh, um, focused alone on patents or on standard essential patents, not at all. I mean, this is a very horizontal instrument on, on all IP. Um, and um, there, there are calls to say, like, well, the practice goes, goes uh, uh, very broad on a spectrum on the conditions for getting injunctive relief, what judges actually can um, order companies to do damages, how judges uh, calculate damages, what type of things they take into account. Also here, the notions were only very broad. And then another um, element is precisely um, the question, is this still fit for the digital age and, and the, uh, you know, the role of, of, of platforms and digital players in this area? Thank you. Well, we can, I think there are many points that we could uh, discuss, but uh, before that, uh, let's uh, hear from Peter his view from his long experience uh, uh, in the industries and the markets and patents issues. Peter. 
Thanks, Guido. Um, yeah, I, I'll be speaking in my personal capacity from King's College rather than Gibson Dunn because I don't want to offend any clients or so forth. You, usually that's a caveat you get from the commission. We didn't get it today, so I'll give you, I'll, I'll give you a, a different version of it. Um, so, you know, so I, I began as an intellectual property lawyer. I sort of evolved as Brontosaurus Rex was no longer ruled the earth into a competition lawyer. But I've, I've always been fascinated by the cocktail between the two. And um, this panel gives me uh, the opportunity to think about how we get the balance right. So, I mean, at, at first blush, a system which creates and fosters monopoly doesn't seem to be on all fours with a system which ensures that you don't abuse that monopoly. So those who say that there is no tension, that's, and it's just there to deliver the same social welfare goods, that's facile, okay? It is facile because there is a tension. Having said that, the opposite isn't true either um, because th there is a certain degree of complementarity. And the way I see it as, as a practitioner is that, you know, when you're dealing with a competition problem, inevitably you're dealing with a short-term issue which is based on price and, and, and variation. And so it's a very static analysis that a competition authority goes through, whereas IP more or less thinks much, much longer term and thinks much more about dynamic efficiency. So it's innovation. We need to innovate to produce something new. We don't know what the new might be and we don't know what the new might create, but we love new. Okay? And, and, and new has got to be good because that's the whole essence of innovation. Um, so that's where the tension lies. One's short term, one's very much static efficiencies, one's allocative efficiencies. We don't know what the parameters of it are and it's much longer term. Both, if you work them together properly and you get the balance right, they are complementary, however. But it's getting the balance right which is the issue. Um, as someone like Lemley says, I think rightly, the disciplines aren't necessarily intention, but there are cycles of over and under enforcement and over and under protection of both systems. And the question is, at what time are we hitting upon those cycles? And so, for example, the pendulum can swing one way or the other. I mean, personally, historically, in, in my lifetime as a practitioner, I've always assumed that the US system grants intellectual property protection far too easily, but the quid pro quo is that it also doesn't take that much antitrust intervention either. During my life as a practitioner in the EU, we've had Europeans being much more guarded with their desire to grant monopoly rights to anybody and are much more circumspect about it, but are also much more willing to intervene. So the question is, have they both got the balance wrong? And do they really need to recalibrate where the balance sh should be? And last but not least, when we're talking about competition law and how we balance it with IP rights, let's not forget that we're not just talking about any old dominant firm. We're talking about a dominant firm whose dominance comes from the very act of a public grant to a private company. And so it's just not you, you got bigger and therefore the question is we'll see how much bigger translates into abusive behavior. It's you've got a grant from the public body and you, you, you protect yourself behind that. Then going further, we've got the, the beyond balance. We've got the issue of risk. Uh, Kalu was going through the, the various issues that are involved there when we're risking innovation, investment and so forth. The, the reality is 
Now, it's a grim reality, but most IP rights are worth little or nothing. The vast, vast, vast majority, little or nothing, but the small proportion are extremely valuable. Okay? So it's like getting that horse which comes in at a thousand to one, or even better, putting money on Greece winning the 2004 Euro Championship. Okay? That's a good sound investment, but it's highly, it's highly risky. So, and that's, that's, the, that's the problem that Bosworth points out to us, that the vast majority of, of IP rights cover very little or nothing of worth. The other thing that's, uh, I, th I think, very interesting is that in looking at IP rights, we, we tend to get, we, we're always making balances. So some of you pointed out about the excessively long protection to do with copyright. Now, let, I agree with that, but what's the reason for that? The reason for that is because when we first came up with the concept of copyright, it didn't apply to industrial applications. It applied to very, very personal things and became associated with artistic things. It's a very French idea. It's an emanation of the person. Therefore, when we protect copyright, when we initially protected copyright, we wanted to protect the inventor, the creator, not the inventor, the creator and their families. It was a property right that would pass on. So that creative right doesn't seem to make that much sense in an industrial world where most of us, when we say IP, we're talking about the application of IP rights to industrial products or processes. The other thing we need to bear in mind is when we're concerned about the longevity of a right is counterfeiting. You pointed out that counterfeiting 5% you know of the goods that come here. Now imagine if you, not about goods coming here, imagine if you took a, a visit to, a, to any given factory in certain parts of the world, okay? And how much, I remember the, the story of Bill Gates being asked to go to China to cut the ribbon at a new factory, and he was supposed to cut the ribbon here, and before the ceremony started, he took a walk through the factory to find out that in the back half of the factory, they were copying Microsoft software. So he was rather angry about that. So copying and counterfeiting is a natural part of the longevity. So yes, indeed, you might get copyright protection for a stupid T-shirt, but the reality is you're walking around with, or you're walking around with a Real Madrid original. There are 20 other people on your island holiday in Greece walking around with copies of it. Okay, so it's a right which is diluted. Okay, but a patent right is not diluted. That's why we make the trade-off: 17 years, because it's hard to imagine how people could get around that monopoly and survive. The other thing that's a problem with IP rights, we've still got a lot of legacy, is the contradiction between the continental system and the Anglo-Saxon system. The Anglo-Saxon system was basically driven by the Industrial Revolution. So a lot of the IP rights we have from an, uh, um, an Anglo-Saxon point of view are what we call the sweat of the brow. And that led to the problem in McGill, okay? Because no continental IP system would in their right mind, okay, give copyright protection to TV listings. But in the UK and in Ireland, they did. And that bad, that bad set of facts made difficult law and developed general principles, but those principles never needed to develop in the continent because you just don't copyright that sort of rubbish. The Americans went through it and they decided not to copyright the telephone book. Okay? And so they, same, well, they went through the same thing. When we're talking about risk 
again, we're talking about uh, there's a small proportion of, of um, uh, small proportion of inventions that justify IP protection, whatever. I think the statistic was in, in the pharma industry that it's barely below 10% of pharmaceuticals that get below, beyond stage one clinical trials actually are worth anything. So 90% of what you're investing in fails. So there's, there's a, a huge trade-off there. Um, someone like Burson and Maskin, they come up with a thesis, which I think is very, very interesting, that if you've got follow-on inventions or complementary innovation, that that's probably less worthy of protection because somebody's already made a monopoly profit. You've given your reward. Society has rewarded them. So all they can possibly be doing if you've got a loose or a flaccid you know, patent system is all you're allowing them is to continue that monopoly forever. And you can see why that's very, very attractive in the IT industry. You just regenerate, regenerate, regenerate. And I've got quite a bit of sympathy for, for that view. Um, you also mentioned the, the debate between Schumpeter and Canaro. The arrow proposition is that competition drives innovation. I think we'd all agree with that. That's sort of a, like a mother's milk sort of proposition. And Schumpeter takes the contrary view, which is namely innovation and creative destruction uh, means less competition sometimes, which might lead to more innovation because you know, the, the entity is more comfortable to innovate. Shapiro tells us, though, I think this is where the balance comes in. Look, you can reconcile both of those views. They both want to you know, protect contestability at the uh, up front, but they mustn't unduly impact on appropriability. You know, can you withdraw some monopoly rents? The next point I'd like to turn is to the innovation competition issue. And that is the hot topic right now, and it's raised itself in Dow DuPont, Bayer and Monsanto, and so forth. And I think from a, from a, from a lawyer's point of view, the, the question is not, can you have restrictions of competition with respect to innovation? I, I think anybody who says that that's not a relevant issue is just not reading the merger regulation and not reading Article 102. Of course you can. <coughs> of course you can. The big issue from a lawyer's point of view is, how far back can the commission go into the early stages of pharma development before what they're engaging in is pure speculation based on the fact that 90% of what any company is going to develop is going to fail. And I think that's a real concern uh, that, 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 that regulators need to not overextend themselves and not overspeculate because there is a real danger of a type one error in, in that point of view. I don't agree with Bushel, who says that the Commission's got it wrong to not investigate R&D and innovation issues with respect only to relevant product markets. I don't think that's, that's the test in the merger control regulation. I think he's got that wrong. The Commission is entitled to look at the issue more broadly. However, I am ambiguous about whether there are direct links between market structure and innovation in, in each case. The important thing is that from a merger point of view, the onus is on the party willing, wishing to demonstrate that the dynamics of welfare outweigh any restrictions of competition. And for my last point, I just like, want to go through the, how we do accommodate the two disciplines in a particular way. Um, we used to struggle with, for about 30 years, with the essential subject matter test. We used to say that an IP right was fine, however you exercise it, as long as you didn't exceed its essential subject matter. But that was a, a back-of-the-envelope sort of test, which was really just to give us some bifurcation between 
when is it legitimate to play around with the free movement and not. It then became a test which was not just free movement-wise but in competition law as well. So I was very happy when Microsoft came along because finally the commission said, you know, we've, we've done a lot of growing up now. It's not about essential subject matter. It's not. It's about getting the balance between does the pro-competitive good outweigh the anti-competitive harm. It's as simple as that. And it's, it's silly to propose that that's going to always be an easy answer. It's not. So that, that was the very important thing. What was also very important is that as a result of that case law and the, the, the case law which followed, a refusal to supply turned on what is an exceptional circumstance. Why, why would an IP holder not wish to license? And what's important is that that decision as to what is an exceptional circumstance is not an IP decision, it's a competition law decision. So IP rules from that point of view. Um, now, how do we determine, if we were to determine, which one wins in any given turf battle? Um, given that IP is problematic up front when it is granted, and incredibly problematic at the back end when people want to artificially extend it, I would suggest that maybe a way forward is to say that patent thickets and blocking patents and patent assertions are the sort of things that the IP rules can possibly deal with because they're all about the right and the grant of the right. Standard essential patents is somewhat different because we're intruding as antitrust lawyers, but what are we doing? We're playing a little bit of a sleight of hand here. We're looking at it from a tacit collusion point of view. So it's not just a straight IP right, you've got market power. It's got you've got market power in the context of everybody else in the industry wanting some part of the aspect. So there's a collusion issue going on. And when we're saying don't challenge, don't assert an injunction, what we're saying is fulfill your contractual obligations. So I think they're very two very important sleight of hands that we've, we've dealt with there. Then later on, when we're talking about artificially extending the life of the IP, then we have patent ambush, unlawful extensions, pay for delay, um, and the, the sort of classic AstraZeneca um, regulatory abuse phenomenon and the refusal to lie on indispensable terms like an essential facility. And there we say, yes, competition has to take the lead there. Not forgetting that hovering in the background is the doctrine of special responsibility uh, for all dominant firms. And why is that important? I just want to finish now. Um, it's important because... What we've seen in IP, when firms have IP rights in, 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 a, in a competition law setting, we tend to find, and this is no surprise, we tend to find very, very narrow market definitions. So a dominant firm is a monopolist. And that's, you can see that through the case law in pharma where molecules, molecules, are supposed to be substitutable. And the, the commission looks at whether or not molecules are substitutable. And if you get down to molecular structure, that's pretty tough to say you're not a monopolist in anything worth having an IP right over. Secondly, the widening of the scope of what is exceptional under 102 for a refusal to license. Thirdly, the normative rules which apply more strictly through the European Union courts. Because let's not forget, the commission has been talking a pretty good game over the last 10, 15 years about efficiencies and about an effects-based doctrine. 
but does the court buy that? The court is still sticking to its old traditional normative rules. And where the commission is trapped is that when it defends its decisions and it goes before the court, its knee-jerk reaction, of course, is to defend its positions on traditional policy because that's what the court will expect. And so we're having less movement than we arguably should because the court is more conservative than the commission and the commission, in order to defend itself, relies on a more conservative theory. And last and definitely not least, let's not forget that with all our intellectual property rights, we have an incredibly market distortive effect when we apply competition law, and it's called the internal market. Okay, wanting to have the internal market is a great thing sitting in the middle of Brussels. Of course, we all want the internal market. The problem is it's not necessarily consistent with a debate about where does IP end and competition law start? Because if we truly want an internal market and we're not willing to put a little bit of water in our wine, we will ultimately get mega IP holders on a European basis instead of a national basis. We will get higher average prices over the whole of the EU as opposed to different prices. I'm convinced of that. And we might guess fewer product ranges because what you get down is the more monopoly you have at a pan-European level, the more of a uniform product you might have as well. So what I'm trying to say by that is take a look at the Murphy case, have a look at the origins of that case and look at how it ar arose, someone taking a decoder from Greece to go to the UK and ask yourself today, as a result of that case, do Greek citizens watching football pay more or less? Do they watch more or less football? And do they have a wider portfolio of things to look at as a result of our freedoms from Mrs. Murphy? Uh, that's all I have to say. Uh, thank you, Peter. Um, you raised many uh, points. I'm sure that uh, there will be some comments. Um, just uh, one question. Uh, when <coughs> you refer to the static view of competition policy and the more dynamic view of IP uh, policy, uh, is this um, a point of criticism and a recommendation that we should apply more dynamic view also from competition policy point of view? Look, in theory, yes. In theory, yes. But um, again, you know, the, the Competition policy, you could apply a more dynamic view in a merger context, I think. You, you're probably not going to apply a more dynamic view in a, an Article 102 context because you're looking back historically, you've seen, you've seen damage, you've seen harm, whatever, so you can take a much more static approach. I think what we're seeing, the, the, the static versus um, um, innovative is coming to grips. One of you two mentioned um, 5G. Internet of Things, yeah, uh, I, I think that's um, a game changer for me. It's a, it's a game changer because the constellation of stakeholders is going to be completely different. So if you're going to take this big view, you're going to have big complications. <laughs> and that's, that's going to be the problem. So yes, suddenly there are more stakeholders, but if I take into account all of their desires in a welfare analysis, all I'm doing is creating a whole world of pain in terms of analysis. So the, the static view can be much simpler for me in which I can build upon. 
that's one issue. And, but, but what it will do is to say, I think we are going to have to move away from this static view on price. Because all, all the decisions in the mobile cases, for example, recently, have turned on what's going to happen if we go from four to three. Do we have higher prices? And in, a, in, a, in an Internet of Things environment, where the amount of revenues generated in the mobile industry because we speak to one another is dwarfed by the amount of revenues generated by the amount of times a car communicates with our fridge is a very different world. And you know, do we actually get Schumpeterian and say maybe we need more stable networks carrying that diversity of traffic and we can live with it there because the welfare trade-offs are different. We want a different sort of welfare compared to just pure price, which we're still a little bit fixed on today. But I think it will be a game changer. Um, before we go to the audience for questions, let have, uh, let's have one round of reactions. Um, uh, Reiko, do you have any comments on the, uh, what this uh, panel speaker has mentioned? you want to comment on something? Um, yes. Oh, that's right. Thank you. Um, all three talks, I think, uh, focused, oh, the part that struck me and stuck with me the most is uh, innovation and competition policy, I think, which is common, I think, well, because it is intellectual property. And IoT, I think, is going to be a big challenge. And uh, it relates to the heterogeneity of the uh, stakeholders that uh, was also mentioned. And I had thought, this is actually asking a question, that our experience with SCPs and patent pools and SSOs until now was going to be very valuable for the next challenge of coming up with standards with I, for IoT. But I guess the consensus is that what we, the knowledge we have accumulated so far is not going to be useful. Is that right? That's comforting. Sorry? <laughs> it's comforting for the youngsters. It's not so comforting for someone my age, <laughs> if I can't rely on experience. So that, that's my comment and kind of a question. It, it probably means that uh, innovation and competition policy has to inno be innovative itself as well uh, to, that's to, true. To, uh, yeah. to respond to the challenges. And I think, um, I think maybe also just the... the Recognition that something is a game changer and that we have to look anew and that we invite everybody, you know, to, to take a fresh look and wonder whether, you know, whatever um, uh, certain models are still valid, you know, in a new industry and it always makes sense. Um, I just wanted to, to pick up one small thing at the end when, again, I think I'm, I feel uh, called to defend the internal market um, <laughs> in, this, uh, in this panel. Um, and I think. Um, uh, when it comes to, to the IP part, I, I wanted to stress uh, um, that I was talking at the beginning about a toolbox. Yeah, and um, of course, I was mentioning things that complement the toolbox at the European level. Um, but it is still a fact that um, national IP and the national you know, IP registrations, etc., play still a very, very important role. Yeah? If you just look still at the proportion, for example, of trademarks which are registered in Alicante and those on the registers of national offices, I mean, the national offices still sort of outnumber by a factor of 10 or so, yeah, uh, uh, the, the, this trend. There might be a trend, yeah, obviously towards more national titles, and, uh, and you would expect that this would also still remain pretty much mm, uh, the same 
for a while when it comes to the unitary patent and we have a you know, more European-wide patent title. So um, I don't think that having these tools available necessarily means that everything will converge and drift to more sort of standardized uh, um, and, uh, and homogeneous products which take out a little bit the variation I, I understand that you were concerned of and the variety uh, um, and um, which has, if you really do trade-offs between certain member states, if you want to territories, um, uh, has positive effects individually, and, and if you bring this all on a common ground, you know, some win, but also a number of people lose, lose in prices, but also in variety or, or the like. So I think the tools are still there, and, and um, we see that there is still quite an uptake of, of also just national strategies uh, when it comes to IP. There was also a comment uh, that uh, copyright uh, rules, uh, probably they were uh, uh, created in order to address uh, the protection of creators and the family and they less applied to the industrial era. Um, for you, uh, according to the three pillar, uh, we have the correct rules. Well, <coughs> I think um, we, we also had a copyright for a reform at the moment, which didn't address this part. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm also not, you know, our unit is not dealing with, with copyright in general. Um, and um, I think copyright is, is an area which, which is always uh, sort of um, strongly impacted by, by, by new, new developments, new business models, etc. So I think there will always be a call in looking again into um, uh, do we have the, you know, the, the tools right and up to date. I think the Commission did uh, an attempt, you know, a proposal on, on, on look in, to look into those. Um, and I think we'll, we'll see what, what comes out of the legislative process. Um, um, but I think at, at the moment, you know, we, we, we believe this is our, our shot so far in, in that respect. Any comment? Um, <clears throat> yeah, maybe just, just on, on some of the design aspect of, of IP rights, because um, I, I, I hope I wasn't understood at saying, saying IP rights don't, don't matter. Uh, but I think the spirit of even in patents, we kind of have to think whether we need to adjust the systems more towards giving the incentives in the right direction is something important. So when we were talking some years ago about business format patents um, in the US, one very quickly realized that that was more hindrance of innovation than anything else. And as we're seeing all the business format innovation that we have at the moment, we should be glad that we don't have this. Um, I think in, in other areas, for example, um, you know, Apple's great innovation was the integration of a, of a touch screen and the good software with it and the design altogether. That was, that was the big innovation. What did they patent? They were on design patents where the question is, is that much more of a hold-up issue? Does, does that ge generate hold-up like with Samsung here where, you know, in Germany for the Christmas season they couldn't sell, for example? Is that a good thing to have? Um, I think similarly what came up in uh, kind of there is are these papers that are basically saying with this complexity of patents maybe they shouldn't be as long in an industry that has a lot of complementarity and so on. I think we need that discussion in order to kind of just adapt uh, the incentive structure of the, of the IP system over time and that will also cause us to have less competition problems that are arising from the IP system as such. Uh, let's open the floor for questions. Uh, yes, back there. And then I go. Ah, you are all in the same line. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Good evening, citizens. Uh, my name is Angelos Karlaftis, Epaphos Advisors. Uh, uh, the, the very good, uh, informative uh, 
discussion Peter has uh, has uh, analyzed uh, is a tankful one. Is a, not a think tank. It's a tank. Uh, also, the administration's uh, ideas are. Uh, are always the same, in Europe at least. Mm -hmm. But the, the, the main concern of us, uh, 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 at least as a, as a political movement, uh, it is uh, the relations with Japan. So what are the basic uh, conflicts? Are there any conflicts uh, for the IP issues uh, between uh, Europe and uh, Japan? And if there are, which are the main of these? And also, what are, are your policies with China? What are you doing with your China policies? Thank you. Let's collect uh, three, four questions, and we'll answer collect. Well, we'll start with the easy ones first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's go to the... Yeah. Uh, second one in, on, on the center. Okay. Um, hello, my name is uh, Professor Denson from I'm in RC. I would, um, to, to short comments, short, don't worry. I would first like to greet the Japanese um, participants here. Um, I'm a neuroscientist, very much interested in what we call the education of the tomorrow and governance of tomorrow, and I attended a fascinating uh, neuroscience congress in Kyoto some time ago. So you are most welcome. Uh, yeah, um, just two short comments, yes. One, well, concerning competition, well, to my mind, it increases fragmentation, and the world is already terribly fragmented. Is it time to explore how to constructively integrate all the fragments together in order to achieve and sustain the citizens' well-being quality of life, which is, after all, the citizens' well, uh, the uh, thermonidin's top priority? And uh, I finish by, um, yes, um, well, I'm, I'm feeling rather uncomfortable with the gentleman from DG Growth, your intervention. Um, uh, nothing personal. I don't know you. <laughs> okay. But uh, I'm afraid that when you speak of uh, defending intellectual property rights, and you, not you personally, um, you're not very credible. Um, I mean, uh, Eurosciences, uh, Foresight, the EIT, uh, Open Innovation and Open Science are so-called European institution initiatives that have been directly inspired from my work without the slightest economic recognition in complete violation of intellectual property rights. And uh, there is now a legal action that is being considered against DG Education and Culture and EIT for plagiarism. So I'm sorry, but um, okay, you may be defending intellectual property rights, but uh, for me, uh, doesn't sound very convincing. Thank you. Thank you. Let's try to be quick in the questions. I see many. Uh, let's take one more okay, to, and to close the first uh, round, and we'll I, see if we have time. I'll try to be uh, brief. Um, I just have a comment to Mr. Alexiades' comment. He mentioning that we are looking into molecules in, in pharma mergers. Um, and the, the um, importance of IP there. Um, that actually came up in the decision in 19, 2008, Bava Teva Bar. And there was an excellent case team and a very well-drafted decision. I don't want to tell you who was on the case team, but... Um, the reason, and we thought this was actually the first mergers between two generics producers. And we were looking at the traditional framework. But at one point we realized, and we actually talked with our colleagues in the FTC, and here, I mean, we have two generics companies merging with each other. We have to go down to molecule level. 
uh, and we were, I mean, as I said, we were, we were pretty smart. And is that, a, is that a problem? You could even have three products with the same molecule, and they're not even on the same market. You could have the original product, uh, and then you could have two generic producers. But if the original product uh, still keeps a high price, which is five to ten times higher, they're actually not on the same relevant product market. So what's your problem with that, actually looking at into molecules in pharma? I think we... I think we we were right, actually. So Let's uh, address. That's, that's an easy one. There's nothing wrong, there's nothing wrong with it. Um, the, the, the point was, if you're having a debate as to whether or not competition yeah. law can address the excesses of IP, yeah. looking at a very, very narrow market definition means that you can address it. Because you, you're, you're suddenly not wasting. What do, what do we waste most of our time on? Defining a market and determining dominance. And then we get to the theory of harm, which is the really interesting bit. If you can say that the substitutability is there at the molecular level, and you can go straight to the dominance issue, then we can start focusing on the interesting issue, which is the real issue about how to combat excessive IP rights. So it's not a problem. I'm saying is that the narrowness affords greater teeth to competition law if you, do, if you go down a narrow path. You want to address any other of the questions? Or? No, the others are too hard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's uh, go to Reiko about... EU and Japanese law. Yes. Okay. Um, oh, sorry. Uh, thank you for the, the, uh, the question. Um, as, as far as I know, I, I used to uh, study comparison of IPs between US and Japan for a while. And compared to that difference, the European and Japanese patent laws are a lot more similar, and I haven't personally haven't heard co companies complain, for instance, that they have difficulty patenting products because the EU, EU and the Japanese patent laws are different. Competition law, as I showed on the, uh, the panel in my talk, there is a difference, but I think the biggest uh, but but the, the authorities are very aware of the differences and there are constant uh, meetings, adjustments between the competition authorities. And I think most of the adjustment actually comes not in the law itself, but the administration or how the, um, not the policing, but how the research is done. If there is a... Uh, a cartel uh, is is suspected, and how information is shared, how the uh, the lawyer and client privileges differ between Japan and Europe. That's a big. That's the where most of the problem is the administrative uh, level between Japan and, and EU. Um, regarding China, there are many Japanese firms that uh, do business in, in China, and I think, I don't know what it is like for European uh, firms that do business in China, but the biggest problem with competition law is unpredictability of the uh, competition authority, I think. And they're just, they're, the competition law in China, of course, is a lot newer, and they're still learning how to uh, implement it. I don't know if that's an answer to your question, but that's what I have to say. Thank you. Yep. Michael. All right, the, the hard ones for me then. Um, 
Well, just to, to complement on, on, on the relationship with Japan, I mean, you might also know that um, we are in, in the context of negotiations of a free trade agreement <coughs> with, uh, with Japan, and which uh, has an IP chapter. Um, and also there, I think we, we saw a lot of convergence and uh, mm, uh, common ground um, on, on you know, the, the general approach. So I think, um, so there I would echo that, you know, I, I don't see big sort of fundamental uh, uh, differences or tensions. Now there was um, um, the uh, the comment that um, competition um, may lead to fragmentation, and we should you know look more into co collaborative models or, or, or the like. I think just um, a very ancillary point here, um, in particular, also when we talk about standard essential patents. Um, uh, the case was mentioned that um, there are is the possibility of pools, yeah, and that also the competition rules have concrete elements of guidance under which conditions such pools are actually um, possible and perfectly legitimate under competition considerations. And, and I think they, in, in my view, would address quite a number of the challenges that we are, have now around standard essential patents, which is about um, one-stop shop, which is about um, uh, royalty stacking uh, and these type of issues, which I think are, uh, would be much easier to get a grip on if, if we uh, really uh, could come to, to a broader use of, uh, of pools also in the key standards uh, around uh, 5G and, and the like. Mm, um, but obviously this, you know, requires that everybody, you know, comes together with the same sort of mindset. Um, and then, well, on, on this uh, um, copyright dispute, uh, I'm afraid I can't say a lot because, you know, I, I don't know what it is about. It's obvious that the commission on the one hand holds IP and it's using IP and um, I would uh, very much hope that uh, in both cases we, we follow the principles that we are <laughs> preaching ourselves. Um, but this is an individual case and issue where, you know, I, I don't really know, don't know the details and um, um, that makes it very difficult to sort of uh, comment in, in detail on what type of material here was, uh, was, uh, was used or in which context. Thank you. Any comment? Yeah, maybe I j just, I mean, one comment just to underline. I, I agree with the patent pool kind of issue, and usually the patent pools, especially with standard essential patents, aren't necessarily a problem from a competition point of view, but they deal with a lot of the issues. Um, the question is how to get there and, and kind of what the rules are going to be. Um, I did want to kind of take issue a little bit with the with molecule uh, uh, definition in, in pharma. Not, not, that, not that that wasn't the right way to do it on molecules in that case, but I think it's the, op the, the other way around. It's, it, in, in pharma, it depends very much on the life cycle point of the product, what the right market definition is. Um, so actually, the molecule definition comes about once it's questionable uh, or uh, questionable whether there should still be patent protection because it's mostly not on the molecule but uh, because of uh, implementation patents of how you crystallize the stuff or the patents aren't there anymore at all. And that's where you typically get the molecule uh, uh, definition basically because the closest comp uh, competition is from products that are chemically identical and, and have the, the same crystalline form. On the other hand, if you have relatively new products that matter a lot in mergers, there the question is how does it compete with new prescription for a certain class of, of health problem? And there the appropriate question is not on the molecule level, but on a treatment class level. 
And so you're going to see in different mergers and in different antitrust cases these market definitions differing because the types of products that you're looking at are very different. And, and I think that the interesting thing is that the pharma industry really understands this now. I just heard uh, two months ago uh, someone from the pharma industry explaining, going through the life cycle, how the market definition actually changes, basically what, because what the closest product can be uh, very much changes changes over time. And so I think that linkage there that you're making between kind of the patenting and how you can deal with competition issue, make it narrow, and you can deal with the patent issues with competition, doesn't quite fit, I think, in that particular farmer example. I, I, I see some, some nodding there. <laughs> He's been brainwashed. We run out of time, please, quickly. The, the, mol the molecule um, level analysis was in a very particular context. Yeah. Okay, that was the first time when one generics producer merged with another generics producer. Yeah. And that's the very specific. Th then they have merged, and I mean, when now Jeb, I thought it no longer, they have become kind of, you have innovators and you have generics producers. But now the, the, the generics producers have become innovators, so, so it's all blurred. But in 2008, it was quite clear. Yeah. It was the first one, the biggest, I think, Teva and the second largest in the US that merged. And they were all, so that was the very specific context. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I think for an innovative drug and a new drug, you wouldn't have thought of that going mm. down into the molecule level. You would have stayed at the sort of, the traditional framework. That's market definition changing through application, as it were. Um, market definition can also change through commercial usage. Yes. Uh, yes. I'm looking at yes. Scott Marcus there. Telephony, video, mobile, fix, whatever. If you break it down and look f fast forward to 10 years, maybe none of us think in those terms. Maybe we all think of communications. Okay? And that will be fostered not by our demand, but by the supply, because if somebody's offering all four or five to us and we get used to it and we like it, that will, our demand will then match the supply. But, you know, depends. Some can be demand-driven, some can be supply-driven, uh, some can be just maturation. Um, you know, you can evolve into other yeah. Um, I see many hands. Uh, I don't know. Do I have the permission of the speakers to have five more minutes, or sure. you have to leave? Sure. Is this okay? So they are kind enough. So we have three questions. Let's close to these questions. Let's start one, two, three. Yes, it's a quick one uh, focused on life science because uh, it's a major area now. And uh, discussing uh, patent IP. Uh, between countries when, uh, like U.S., that gene patent, patenting gene is uh, allowed versus Europe where I guess it's not allowed, then you see the growth of a big competitor who can uh, use a um, process patent for sequencing gene, for instance, and this uh, allowed the growth of big companies versus another country when it's not allowed to process to protect the process of uh, patenting genes or claims, small claims. Thank you. Let's go to the gentleman here in the first row. Thank you very much. My name is Wolfgang Papa. I'm now with SEPS, formerly with the Commission. I would like to address a question directly at uh, Aoki Sensei because Peter pointed out the difference between Anglo-Saxon and continental law in a way. I think there's even more difference between European or Western law and Japanese understanding, particularly in terms of what is competition. The word competition in Ch Japanese, kyoso, is quite different from what we call co competition or concurrence or whatever you have in Europe. 
because it's much more of a rivalry, the understanding of competition, if you look into the world. And even the word for uh, copying in Japanese is quite different from European understanding because the word manesuru or manebu, learning and copying, is much closer in Japanese context than in our idea. We still have this Christian ideal of creativity from zero, which in Japanese it's not the case. For you it's much easier to copy, starting with writing the language and other things in Japanese and Chinese context as well. Isn't there a basic difference in understanding of these terminologies already? We are talking English here, but if you go back to Japan, I think the understanding is quite different. Thank you. Thank you. And final question. Thank you for taking my question. So my name is Audrey Scozao-Ferrazzini, and I work for Qualcomm. So we have some SEPs, so I disclose that. Uh, my question is more like a quiz, maybe, to finish. Uh, Kai, you mentioned uh, some innovators um, in the smartphone environment, and I just wanted to ask you if you are aware of the name of some companies currently working very hard, so not Qualcomm only, okay, but more investing on the future of building 5G technologies. So those information are public, of course, you know, it's done through 3GPP, which is the body uh, developing the technology uh, for Europe and worldwide, and there are some different other initiatives. But just a question for you, Peter. Uh, do you know which companies are contributing heavily? I'm not talking about having SEPs, okay, because everybody is now developing the, the standards, and the standard is not adopted. So we are, you know, I, I would really like to know if you have an idea of which companies worldwide are currently developing the great innovation that I hope one day we will be able to enjoy. Um, thank you. I'm going to take a wild guess and say Qualcomm. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's one. That's one. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll give you one. But if you, could, if you could name some, for instance, because I think it's important as well for people to understand which companies are developing sorry, the technology that nobody is, nobody is seeing, you know, so technology is not happening you know, in a vacuum. So I just named some of them, you know, and I don't take any side, but you have, for instance, Panasonic developing heavily and sending a lot engineers, you've got, well, sorry, so Panasonic, I repeat, you've got some institute as well, universities or Fraunhofer Institute, you've got Qualcomm, you've got Orange, you've got Huawei, you've got many, many, many players, you've got Samsung, just as an example, as Apple is not contributing to 5G technologies, and it's not because you don't contribute to the technologies that you will not get access so I think this is something very important for everybody to understand, you know. When a company is giving a friend commitment, the company is giving, in a way, a waiver for everybody to use a technology that will be adopted. So even if you're not part of the process, or you arrive late, or you're going to be the next Samsung or the next Apple, you will have the technology. And all those companies, you know, uh, around the table are doing that, and very few people know about it. But if you go on the website of 3GPP, you will see all the, all the companies and the contribution. So, thank you. Thank you for providing also the questions and the answer. <laughs> and the answer. <laughs> Wish more people would do that. <laughs> so, uh, final comments uh, also for the other questions. Or, um, one was for you, Reiko. Okay, so th thank you for the question. Um, 
and it's a very difficult question to ask. Partly, I don't know. I don't know if I understood the, your question correctly. But the, I guess the idea is that although Japan has adopted uh, most of the legal system in, in uh, Japan was modeled after the Prussian system, but when they translated everything into Japanese, it turns out each word actually has a different meaning than it, it, it does in in, uh, in Prussia. I think is the question. And it, it is true that sometimes that it becomes uh, difficult when implementing competition law because we adopted the whole principle from, from abroad, particularly the law and economics approach. And, um, but when, you, when the Japanese were actually involved in the court cases, you realize that their concept of competition differs. And there is now, a, some people in Japan that really stress the uh, aspect of uh, things Japanese and we should be interpreting it differently. But of course, on the other hand, everybody's globalizing, right? So the short answer, for instance, cartels, maybe Japanese have a very different idea of cooperation, right? But that doesn't stand up in, in, uh, in the court, say, uh, claiming or, or what we thought of cooperation or competition is different from what the court is claiming or uh, what it is claimed in the other, other countries. And I think although culturally it may mean one thing, I think Japan legally is adopting to the, uh, to the Western system. I don't know if that's good or bad, but in practice it has to be that way. I, I, I will be in reinforce that cultural issue. I remember it wasn't too long ago when uh, the EU started uh, enforcing cartel policy and uh, the first, one of the first recipients of that love um, were the Scandinavians. And the first time a Finnish company went to seek leniency, there was a huge cultural backlash against them in Scandinavia because it was Scandinavians. We don't rat on our brothers. We just don't do that. Um, and it, but now you'll, you'll find that the, the mood has changed completely in Scandinavia as they understand what cartel policy is. And they just realize it's no longer part of the business culture, whereas before it was just well, the way business people got together. Oh, could I just add one thing? Um, uh, it just reminded me about the, how the Japanese felt about the leniency system before they adopted it. And everybody said it was very un-Japanese and it wasn't going to work, but it, it's fantastic. So I just add that comment. Thank you. Uh, any final word on the questions, comments? I just wanted also to um, to reply. I think the, the, the comment or question on on, on the, the, in particular this biotechnology area. I think which I understand it, but you pointed to, to to certain really also divergences between jurisdictions and so on. I mean, we we you know that in Europe we have a directive on on, on biotech and um, which which brings up regularly new, new questions, new issues. We just had uh, a very recent one on the patenting of um, of certain you know plant uh, material and products like tomatoes and, and broccoli, where we also came out with a notice on how we understood this, and which took uh, a narrow approach, which says, well, these specifically uh, uh, referred to products were not patentable. Um, so which also shows, and I think that is sort of the overarching uh, kind of um, um, conclusion, that it's always about balance. Uh, we will probably not have a global con 
sort of consensus on, on where the cursor always has to be, neither in this uh, sort of biotechnological field, uh, neither on the relationship between competition and, um, and, uh, and IP. You will always have a competition between systems, um, but I think um, in the end we, we always strive to strike the right balance so that both can actually uh, deliver on, on, on their promises. And maybe on the, on the last question, although it was already answered, but I think there was something else implied with it. Yeah. Um, and so so I, was, I was glad that I kind of had the right candidates in my mind. I was really worried when you asked it. <laughs> um, in the same way as it's obvious that, that Apple is not in, this, in the business of, of developing these things. But I, I think the fundamental issue here is that right now we have a lot of people doing a lot on this technology and sometimes things that are very substitutable. And really, the, the issue is what becomes with the pricing for this technology after there's been a commitment to one that might have been a substitute for another. And I think uh, that, that's really when we're talking about uh, what the SSOs do, do and, and with the interventions that we've had, that kind of transition of something that's a very competitive open process to, to a commitment where there's, by the nature of it, no pricing before the commitment that we need to deal with. And, and I think, I, I hope that that's resolved in a, in a way that actually enhances the adoption of G5 and doesn't leave us stuck uh, in the kind of debates that we're, we're, we're at, at the moment still having in things like Etsy where things don't seem to be moving forward, right? And so, so it's, it's that movement from this broad, uh, innovative effort. Of course, that's also only valuable if there are kind of the guys who are applying it, who are you know, inventing the things that are using the speed and, and, and the bandwidth that, that it brings. So, so the complementarity of the system is very large. But, but I think that's that transition. That's the thing that the policies, I think, uh, that, that the policymakers are, are concerned about. Um, it was very kind of the speakers to extend a little bit the session in order to address uh, questions, and I would like to thank them. Uh, I would like uh, to invite you to thank them for uh, being there with us and for discussing this issue. Thank you also very much for.